Saw Pursuit. Hope you guys enjoyed that powerful worship this morning. Uh, I want us to take a second before we even get into this, and I want us just to pray because I think that God wants to speak something to our lives today. But I think this is one of those messages that is going to matter a ton to us on an individual level, but I also think it's one of those messages that God is going to speak to his church in totality on uh, in our nation and in this country and what God's doing and what I believe is coming in the near future. I pray, Lord, that you would just... uh, Open up our hearts, God, right now as we start to pray. Give us the words. God, give us the words in this moment. Father, I pray, Lord, that you will let your spirit just move, God. I pray, Father, no matter where we are or when we are, Father, when we watch this, Lord, that your spirit will take your truth, that you would just consume us with it, that you will overwhelm us, Father God. I pray, Father, right now that your power will move, Father God. I come before you, Lord, completely weak and vulnerable this morning. Father, I know that I'm just a vessel, Father, and I'm thankful for that. And I ask you, Lord, that you will just move, Father, that every ounce of me, every ounce of us this morning will just be emptied out before you, Father, and that your spirit will just move, that your will will be done above all things, God. I pray, Lord, teach us in your holy name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and we're going to start with verse 7. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Verse 7. And while you guys are flipping there, I want to take you back uh, to a day that I had in ninth grade. Um, and we had this history class, and I loved history. I, I, I've just always been fascinated with history and the way things played out. I just always have felt, even at a young age, that there's so much you can learn from watching the way things have happened, uh, knowing uh, the things you could kind of learn and take in and try to prevent certain things. I've always just been fixated with history. And one of our history classes in ninth grade, now I am convinced uh, that at this stage in our culture, uh, that the section that we had in my ninth grade history class probably doesn't exist in today's history class, but we actually had, uh, and as we were going through the history of America, we had a section called American Religion or a religious section, and we talked about the huge uh, effect that God and, and, and specifically Christianity had on America, and they went through some of these moments, and it was in this class and in this section of American history that I first heard the words Great Awakening, the Great Awakening, um, and I think there's like another, a second great awakening later on, but the first great awakening was significant in the shaping of America, uh, that basically in the mid-1700s, God just began to move in a crazy way uh, in people's lives, and in individuals, and in church leaders, and pastors, and in, in churches, and eventually in whole cities. Uh, God just began to move. God began to save people's lives. There was just a, a huge focus put on God, and it was so dominant, and it was so powerful, it was so authentic, and it was so real that entire uh, cities and city councils and, and, and part of the colonies, they got together, and they they wanted to, to declare themselves, you know, like, we, we want this city, or we want this area, we want this region, we want this colony. We want to be Christian. We want to be God-focused. We want to be Jesus-fearing, and, and they wanted to put stuff in laws, and, and it, was, it, was, it was epic. It was, it was a powerful thing. Uh, it, was, it was really the great awakening when you hear people talk about uh, the foundation of America was God or the foundation of America was Christianity. It really was the great awakening that really gave this. A lot of people think it's because people came from, from Europe or from England for religious persecution, and they came here to be able to serve God on their own, the pilgrims and the Puritans, and in, in different things, that there's, a, there's definite truth in that, but it was really the great awakening that, that 
actually took Jesus and made it just made him such a dominant name and a dominant figure, uh, even in the government uh, of. America, eventually, this was even before the Declaration of Independence, before the Revolutionary War, this was really the, the beginning foundations of the American colonies, this Great Awakening. It was so epic. There's been hundreds of thousands of books written about this season, the stories and the, the, the way that God moved. It revealed, it, it, it symbolized, or it looked something like out of scripture. It was just, it was just epic. But then all of a sudden, one day in, in, in the late, uh, I think, 1740s, 40s to 50s, somewhere around there, as, as quick and as powerfully as God showed up in the American colonies uh, and in the church leaders and the peoples and the individual lives at the time, as, as quickly and as powerfully as God showed up, he seemed to be gone. Uh, it was so abundantly obvious and so clear that there were actually a lot of books written about that fact, that it just seemed like overnight uh, the, what maybe some would call the presence of God, maybe some would call just the, you know, the spirit moving, maybe some would just call revival. Whatever it was, one day it was present and the next day it just seemed like it was completely gone. And, and there was a, a young preacher then at the time, his name was Jonathan Edwards, and he uh, fully recognized this and he became deeply convicted by God about why the Great Awakening ended. And we didn't really talk about this in that ninth grade history class, but uh, I, I became a little obsessed with it. I was just fascinated by it for whatever reason. And, and years later, uh, I studied and researched and actually did a paper on it in college. And this was, this was the, the thing that Jonathan Edwards came with. There was two prime reasons uh, why God quit moving. And, and as, as Jonathan Edwards would go on to say later on often why the spirit was quenched uh, at, in the Great Awakening. Uh, and the number one reason reason he said was pride. He said spiritual pride. He said that as, as God began to move in people's lives, as God began to move in individuals' lives, as God began to raise up pastors and raise up preachers and raise up teachers, and as God began to move in churches and, and people started to give their lives to Christ by the dozens and then the hundreds and then the thousands, uh, uh, as God began to move even in, in, in leaders' lives and government lives and politicians' lives, and God just began to move everywhere you were looking, God was moving. And there was so much active, authentic power just in the church that, that they weren't just teaching you know, messages anymore. There was just a power and authority in the way that people started to preach. It was just something different, something epic. And, and God started to move uh, uh, in individuals' lives, people who weren't church you know, leaders, who weren't pastors, just in, in, in men and women's everyday lives. Uh, that God started to speak uh, more clearly and God started to open up the Bible, open up the word, open up the revelation of his word to his people and started to teach them. There were, there were healings and stuff going on. There was, just, there was all kinds of just, just showings of God's power and presence uh, and, and what started to happen in the people's lives. Now, this is Jonathan Edwards who went through it, who was there at the end of it, who pastored one of the largest churches, who did a whole sermon series uh, in the 1700s about this spiritual pride that ended and quenched the spirit and then went on later to write a book about it. Uh, he, he, he was deeply convicted and he said, as, as God began to move, as God began to speak, as God began to raise up leaders, as God started to move, even as he described it, just in everyday common people, you know, think like the prophecy of Joel. It says in the, in the last days, I'll pour out my spirit on everyone, even the, the preachers, the church leaders, all the way down to the servants. He's basically anybody, everybody, God said, I'm going to move through. Uh, this, is, this is what was happening. He says, as this started to happen, 
He said people started to grow so prideful and took such ownership and so conceited over what God was doing in their life. And they started to see it almost like a, a spiritual elitism. Well, God's given me this and God's moved in this way through me. God's, God's moved in our church like this, that he's chosen us, that we're, we're, we're up here on this level. We're somebody now. And, 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 and naturally what began to happen, because this always happens when pride and conceit and arrogance start to show up in any form or fashion, uh, is, is you start to take a little bit of the uh, credit, a little bit of the glory for it. Uh, and the next natural step when you're taking a little bit of the credit and a little bit of the glory for it is now you're starting to compare yourself to everybody else. And, 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 and you have to do one of two things. You have to secede. Okay, if, 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 if I'm awesome because God's moving in my life like this, uh, then, then I'm the chosen one and I'm, I'm, the, I'm the leader. I'm, I'm the Moses of this situation. You know, I'm, this, is, this is who I am. If God's moving just like that in other people's lives, you got to do one of two things. You got to have to secede to that or you have to start criticizing them. And so what started to happen uh, was there's these great uh, division that started to break out in church leaders uh, and in different churches and different communities. Uh, and it was eventually this division that made way for a lot of the denominations that we have today. That there was, there was this sense of where you've, you've got to start criticizing people. If you compare and contrast, you have to start kind of criticizing people and going after people to kind of tear it down. And it was this, this spiritual elitism, this spiritual conceit, this spiritual pride that Jonathan Edwards says, without a doubt, quench the spirit of God, and God quit moving just as fast as he started. And this is heavy for me, because one of the things that I've prayed for uh, all my life is I want to be a part of a move of God. I, I want to see God move. I want to watch God just save dozens, hundreds, thousands, even millions of lives. I want to be used by God. I want God to move in my life. I want to I see people around me be used by God. I, I want us to change the world. That's, that's something that I've wanted from the day that I met Jesus all the way up to now. I still want that. I still desire that. I still pray for that. I pray for God to send leaders. I pray for God to send people who will lay down their lives for the glory of God. And I pray for God to move heavily uh, in our people's lives and to be able to change uh, their, their work environments and their neighborhoods and the culture around them. I pray for this constantly. This is something that I love, something I desire, something I, I cherish, something I want. I want to be a part of a move of God. And I believe that we are all right now in this moment a part of a move of God. And so this, this scares me a little bit because as I see this and I, and, I, and I go through and I went through in the last two weeks and I reread some of Jonathan Edwards' thoughts towards it, it just became so convicting to me. I'm like, man, how easy is this going to be? How easy is it going to be for us to grow this way? Because what it appeared to me, it appeared to me that the more that God moves in someone's life, and you need to hear me on this. The more that God moves in someone's life, the more revelation that someone gets, the more knowledge that they get, the more that God uses someone to save people's lives, the more that God uh, operates through gifts of the Spirit in someone's life, the more that, that God, uh, the bigger the platform, the more the influence, the more the wisdom. I mean, you just, whatever it is that God's doing in your life, the more that he moves, the greater the risk of pride, conceit, arrogance, and sin. And it just kind of put me in this, this place of where I'm just looking at this, this paradox of God. Where like the more God moves, I want God to move, but the more God moves, the more susceptible I am to pride. And the more susceptible I am to quenching the spirit, the more susceptible I am to falling into sin and causing death in people's lives instead of life. 
And the truth is, this is not something that, that was new, even in the 1700s. This is something that you see. And after you go back and you read the Bible and you go through and you look at so many of these stories and so many of the, the ways that God moved, you'll see that this, this thing, whatever this is, this was actually something that was dominant in God's people's lives from Genesis to Revelation. If you go through and you look at some of the greatest sins of the people, take David's life, for example. The greatest sins, some of the greatest sins that David committed in his life, it was when he was way up on the mountaintop, way into years and years and years of success and victory, way into God moving greatly, God moving through him like a prophet, God moving through him like a king, God giving his heart songs and inventing instruments and killing giants and, and, and his armies grew strength. The, 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 uh, Israel was united under him. He was given the throne. He was wealthy. He was known. He was famous. It was in this setting that two of the greatest sins took place. The first with Bathsheba. And you could say lust, okay, lust. But what I see is lust, maybe, but I see pride. I see pride going, I am King David, and nothing will be withheld from me that I want, and I want Bathsheba. So if Bathsheba doesn't want it, I want it. And it doesn't matter that she's married because I want it, and I'm King David, and I'm entitled to it. Lust may have been the cause, but pride had to be involved to pull the trigger on something like that. But the greatest sin, in my opinion, even greater than that, was as he was growing old in age, he became so enamored. This is King David. He became so enamored with himself, so addicted to his own power and his own strength that he wanted to put a number to it. And so he came to his commander, Joab, and he said, I want you to go out. I want you to count everybody that can hold a sword, and I want to know how strong is the army of David. And his commander quickly, his general quickly said, why are you doing this? It doesn't matter how many we have because God adds a thousand to each and every single man. God is the strong. God is the strength. God is the victory. It doesn't matter if we have one or if we have a million. It doesn't matter. Why would you do this? And he argued with David knowing the great sin this was because this was David wanting to make a trophy for himself. He wanted to be able to say, this is how powerful I am. This is how strong I am. I've got a million men in my army that can fight for me and that do fight for me and that do die for me. This is it. This is who I am. And he counted them. And it was the greatest, one of the greatest, if not the greatest sins in David's life. And it happened when he didn't have any more enemies. It happened when he didn't have any financial problems. It happened when, when there was peace all around. It, it, happened, it happened at the height of his life after God had blessed and moved and guided and provided and protected. It was in this moment that he became the most prideful. If you go through the warnings that God gave the people of Israel, over from the second they got out of Egypt all the way through the desert, God said over and over and over and over again, when you get to the promised land, and when you go inside and when you're living in the cities that I hand over to you and you're eating from the, the vineyards that you didn't plant and from the, the lands that you didn't plant, when you're drinking from wells that you didn't dig, when you are wealthy, when the treasury is just overflowing and you have protection and you have no enemies and all the nations around you fear you, when you get to that place, do not forget who brought you there. Do not forget that it was me. 
in different times, in different ways, God gives them this warning over and over again, all the way up to right before they went over. One of the last things that Moses ever said to them was, do not forget when you get over there and God hands you over this land that you are not standing there because of your own righteousness. Do not, do not think when you get over there and God gives you victory and you're walking in this blessing and God, you're living in the promised land, don't ever start to think it was my own righteousness that got me here. It was my own actions. It was my own deeds. It was something special about me. This warning over and over and over and over again. And you see it all the way through scripture. You see it all the way up to the great awakening. And you see this in Paul's life. But you see it in a different way. I want you to understand where I'm coming from and where my heart is with this message. Because we're about to talk about something that is difficult, extremely difficult for a lot of people to deal with, to accept, to understand. It's not that you won't understand the point that's being made. It's that you'll struggle to understand why it's true. Paul, and if you don't know anything about Paul, Paul was the man. There's no other way to describe it. Uh, he, he basically preached to, the Bible says, all of Asia. That he planted churches, unknown amount of churches, that he influenced millions of people. That even in the last two years of his life, as he sat in Rome uh, waiting to die, he wrote letters and he preached and he taught and leaders and people from all over the world came to hear the teachings of Paul about this Jesus. It, they, there's a lot of people that speculate and believe that Paul did more damage for the kingdom of heaven in the last two years of his life than all the previous church planning because he was in one place for two years and Rome just let him teach and they were, people would come, hundreds of thousands of people, church leaders and, and government leaders and people from different countries, they would come and they would hear the revelation of Jesus Christ, the gospel from Paul. Paul, and I believe that, that historian, historians probably have it right that in these last two years, through his letters that you and I still read today, the letters that most of the letters that he wrote that, that are in the Bible that became scripture, he wrote during those two years, that it was that last two years that he probably influenced more people for eternity. He's still influencing us today. Paul was uh, gifted beyond anything that we could imagine. And it's the part where I really want you to hang on to this because I, this is my heart. I want God to move in my life. And I hope that you want God to move in your life. But sometimes it feels like, and I'm just going to be honest, sometimes it feels like, as I hear people say this, it feels like again, God's just not moving. God's just not speaking to me. God, God's just not, God, I want to be a part of something, you know, but God's just not, he's, I feel like I, I don't know who I am. I don't know my purpose. I don't know why I've been created. You know, I'm, I'm reading through the scriptures. I'm, I'm, I'm studying the scriptures. It just seems like it's not opening up to me. You know, I'm, I just want God to move. I want greater revelation. I want knowledge. <coughs> and this is the thing with Paul. Give me some water. Thank you, John. This is the thing with Paul. I want to read this. This is not the main scripture, but I just want to read this because I want you to understand his level of revelation, his level of knowledge, the relationship that he had with God. I want you to read this. 
This is 2 Corinthians 12. I must go on boasting, although there is nothing to be gained. I will go on to the visions and the revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except for my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. So this was Paul's humble way of telling you that he had a relationship with God that was exceptional and mind-blowing, that God had revealed things to him that he was not even permitted to say or to tell people, that he had a level of wisdom and knowledge and power that we cannot even imagine in this life, that God, it seemed as if God just relentlessly moved in Paul's life. And this is my heart. I want God to move in my life. I want God to give me wisdom and knowledge and revelation of himself. I want to know the Lord and I want to be used by God in great and powerful ways for his glory and for the good of his people. I want to see dozens, hundreds, thousands, millions of people come to Christ. I want to be a part of that. And I believe that all of us who follow Jesus, they want, we want to be a part. We want God to move in our lives. But this morning, I want to talk about one of the reasons why God doesn't move in your life, and when he does move in your life, why he moves in a way that you might not even realize it's God or in a way that you don't understand. And I, I just wanna, I wanna step into this with this heart. I'm speaking to people this morning where you want God to move in your life. You want God to move and use you. You want God to move in your marriage, in your family, in your job, in your career, in your community, in this culture. You want God to move in your life. That's, that's, that's the target this morning. That's where we are. But this is what Paul says in verse 7. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. So I, I want to I just point this out. This message is going to be a little bit different because I feel a little bit different. I feel like this is one of the most deeply spiritual uh, concepts that we could maybe talk about, yet it is so practical because this is actually the way that God moves in our life. And if you're still kind of rereading that or you're trying to rethink about what I just said, if you don't have your Bible in front of you, what I just said was is that God gave Paul a thorn in his flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment him. 
and there was so much pain, either physically, we don't know what it was, either physically or emotionally or spiritually or neurologically, there was so much difficulty in this that he, this isn't three little prayers, this is three different seasons of prayer, three different times he begged God, take this away from me, and every single time God said, absolutely not. And instead just said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And so if you're sitting there and, and you you're, you're just want me to clarify one more time, are you saying that God gave Paul a thorn in his flesh, that God gave Paul a difficulty, that God used a messenger of Satan in Paul's life to torment him? Yes, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. It's difficult for us to understand this, to wrap our mind around this, especially for the modern American church with the way that we view God and the way that we view life. And so I, wanna, I just want to really fast, I want to say two things, two things that I think that will really help us in our life, two things that will really help you understand the mercy, the grace, and the power in what God's doing here and the way that God works and to accept it. Number one, the way that we perceive things is not the way that God perceives things. Your knowledge, your intelligence, your wisdom, it's not a lower level of God's. It's totally different. In human knowledge, human wisdom, human intelligence, God makes a promise in the Old Testament and confirms it in the New Testament that he is actually going to destroy human intelligence, human wisdom. He's not going to use it. He's going to kill it. He's going to destroy it. The way that we perceive things is not the way that God perceives things, though that we, we would probably quickly admit to that and say, okay, yeah, right, I get that. That's true. But when we go to actually think about life and we go to think about our friendships, our relationships, we go to make decisions, we go to think about our future, we go to think about the way God's going to move in our life, we live under the natural practical assumption that God is on the same page as I am. That God is perceiving things the way that I'm perceiving things. That God's viewing this person the way that I'm viewing this person. Uh, God's viewing this situation the way that I'm viewing it. That my opinion and God's opinion are the same. And I can almost definitely tell you there is never a season or a moment in your life when you and God are on the same page. If you are even close, it is because the Holy Spirit is moving dramatically in your life and pulling you onto his page and giving you a moment of clarity. I've walked long enough with the Lord to know that the way that I think and the way that he thinks is two dramatically different things. And so when God starts to move in our life, he has to move in a way that we will never, he, we, we'll never see it coming. We'll never understand it. It'll never make full sense to us. Period. Because the way that he thinks and the way that we think are just two different things. And most of the time, the things that we want and what God wants for us are two different things. And why God's doing something and why we're doing something are two different things. You need to write this down and just come up to this place and accept this reality. The way I perceive the world is different than the way that God perceives the world. And so most of the time, we will not understand what God's doing when he's doing it. And number two, and this is even more important, you need to write this down. This is going to help you. I promise you this will set you free in so many things in your life. It will give you, there's so much scripture that will become so clear after I say this and you can accept this. I, I want you to understand your greatest problem in this life is you. And when it comes to God moving in your life, God's greatest problem is you. 
Sin has been taken care of on the cross. Death has been defeated in the empty grave. Satan has been judged and shamed. I want you to understand there are other things at play. There are other, your, your temptation, your sin is strong. The flesh is strong. The nature is strong. The devil's got power. I want you to understand, but none of that compares to the problem of you. You are your greatest problem. And so when God has to deal with your life or move in your life, the greatest problem for God moving in your life is you. God knows you. God knows your heart. God knows the way you're going to respond. God knows the things that you struggle with. God knows uh, wh what you're accustomed to, what's natural. God knows the direction that you're going to go. One of the things I hear the most is God's just not speaking to me. God's just not giving me clarity. God's just not showing me. He's just not confirming in me. If he would just show me, then I would do it. If he would just, and I want you to understand one of the greatest reasons why God's not giving you clarity right now in your life is because he doesn't want to condemn you to a season or a lifetime of disobedience because he knows that you are not ready to fall away and follow him no matter what. You're asking for clarity. God's, I'm not going to give you clarity because you're going to go date her anyway. I'm not going to give you clarity because you're not going to quit your job anyway. I'm not going to give you clarity because you're going to go ahead and marry him anyway. I'm not going to give you clarity because if I give you clarity and I make this abundantly clear to you every single second that you don't do it, you now live in disobedience and I've condemned you to live in a life in a season of sin because you're not at a place where I know that you will obey me. So God's not going to give you any clarity. I hear people all the time, uh, God's just not revealing my purpose. That's why you need to go through and you need to read the Bible. And every time it talks about God laying out his will, every single time, what it says first is you lay down your life as a living sacrifice. You get to a place where you will follow me no matter what it is, and then I'll show you what it is. If God's not giving you clarity, if God's not giving you confirmation, if God's not giving you answers, it's because he knows that you're not going to follow him. So way he, the way he's moving in your life right now is he's preparing you to be able to obey him, and then he'll let you know. When it comes to God moving in our life, uh, this is, this is the, the, the thing we see with Paul. Paul admits this. God, he gets to this place. God's got to make a decision. I either am not going to move in their life, because if I move in their life and I bless them and I give them revelation, I give them knowledge and I give them revival and I start to move in the church sooner or later, that arrogant little punk in a jean jacket... He's going to start taking credit for it in his heart. And as much as I love him, he's going to destroy the whole thing. He's going to run his mouth. He's going to start speaking death instead of life. If I start letting the, the gifts of the Spirit just flow in his life, I start using him. So option one is just to not move at all. Option two is to move. And just hand you over to your own pride to bless you, to give you wisdom, to give you knowledge, to open up success, to open up the job, to open up the career, to give you the marriage, to fix everything. And then when the conceit and the pride and the arrogance starts to step in, then you just fall because of it. Or well, the third thing, the God thing, God's way, the way he moved in Paul. He said, I'll give you all the power but with it, I'm going to give you the pain so that you'll be humble enough to actually use the power. I believe one of the reasons why Paul was given such great, surpassingly great revelations as it's described here is because Paul recognized this early on and he accepted it.
and he was okay with it. And he got to a place in his relationship with God where he said, God, I, I want to be used. But I know that my flesh is still at work and I know I still struggle in my heart and I know that I still have sins and I know that I'm susceptible to pride. And pride plays itself out so many different ways in so many different lives. But Paul says, I'm, I'm here so God... I want to be used by you. I, I want to I stand before you and I want to hear you say good and faithful servant. I, I, want, I want to honor you with my life. I want to live as a living sacrifice and I want to go, but God, I know that I'm my greatest problem and so I'm going to stop praying. This is the thing that, that hit me the most. Paul said, I prayed three times and then I didn't pray anymore. I prayed and, and begged, take this away from me. Whatever it was, we don't know what it was. It's the power of it. We don't, we don't know what the thorn in his flesh was. But we know that it was deep and we know that it was painful. And he said, I prayed three times, but then God taught me. I'm not going to take it away from you. Because it's this pain in your life. It's this difficulty in your life. It's this weakness in your life. It's this hardship. It's this thing in your life that is actually making you extremely powerful. And so Paul got to a place in his relationship with God as he said, okay, use me and humble me. And that's the life that I want to live for you, Jesus, if that's the life you're calling me to. And if you go through and you look at Paul's life, he had significant power, significant knowledge, significant revelation, but it was accustomed and accompanied by significant difficulty, hardship, suffering, pain. And some of the most painful things that we'll face in this life is simply God cutting away things in your life that don't need to be there anyway. It, it's like, it's like uh, you realizing you have cancer and the doctor cutting it out and saving your life and then you being upset with the doctor that he cut you open. God's removing the thing that's gonna kill you and crush you in your marriage and destroy your purpose and stop you from being able to live the life God created you to live. Paul gets to this place, and I, he said, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassing great revelations, because of the way God's moving in my life, that was giving me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me three times, I pleaded with the Lord to take it away. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. This is, the, this is a deep promise from God. These are the words of Jesus to Paul. He said, my grace is all you need. Okay, it's sufficient to get through this life. You have everything you need. On top of that, he said, it's my power will be at its full potential. This is Jesus. My power will be perfect, made complete, will be operating the highest it can operate in your life. And it's perfected in weakness. And as I just begin to walk through that, this is, this is what Paul goes on to say because of that. He says, therefore, I boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul said, I used to live a life where I focused on all my strengths. This was Paul. 
He's the, you know, the, the chief of the Pharisees. He memorized almost like all of the known Bible at the time. He, he was a leader among leaders. He was, a, he was the future of the, of the church. I mean, he, it was just all this stuff. He was zealous for them. He was the one persecuting the Christians and knocking down the sect uh, that they called themselves you know, Jesus followers. He was the one going, he had a resume of like nobody's business. And he, over and over again, we see this. He goes, I used to cherish this so much, all these things, all these strengths, all these things I could point to to validate who I am and validate the things in my life and validate my strengths and validate my worth. And he says, and now, now that I'm in this place with Jesus and I'm following Jesus and the Spirit's moving the way he's moving and I've witnessed the, the crazy power of God, now I spend all my time pointing out all my weaknesses because I know every weakness in my life, that's where the power of Jesus is gonna be the strongest. I get to a place, and this is the part where I really, want to, I really just want you to just understand. This is one of those things where I say something that sounds really mean, and it hurts all of our little feelings, but I want you to understand something. You just simply aren't strong like you believe you are. You're one of eight billion frail little human beings. Like we're, we're, we're nothing who we think we are. We just aren't. We really don't have strengths compared to God. This is the delusionment of pride. We don't know what 10 seconds from now will hold. So we're just limited in our ability to make any decision whatsoever. We don't have the strength or the ability to do almost anything of importance. We can't save someone's life spiritually. We can't heal the sick on our own. We can't uh, uh, help someone with wisdom and knowledge from God. We, all, all of the God things, all of the most powerful things, all of the life-giving things, we can't do any of that. We don't have, none of that's our stuff. That's all God through us. And Paul got to this place where he realized, I am just a microphone that God is holding to change the world. And every day that he just was like, I'm a microphone, I'm the vessel. And everything that, that is coming through me, that's God. That's God for his glory and for the good of the people. And so he, he, he's not even talking about strengths. He doesn't have any strengths. He's aware of that. And everywhere that he identifies his weakness, that is where Christ's power is perfected in him. So he said, I recognize these three things. I recognize that God has done things in my life that has weakened me so that I will see the reality of my weakness and then boast in it and depend on God and, and then Christ's power is perfected and the world starts to change before me. He said, and then there's other things that it's not, God didn't necessarily do. God gave him the thorn of the flesh, but some of this other stuff, just insults, just weaknesses in general, hardships, persecutions, and the one that I want to close on, difficulties. Paul says, I boast in all these things. I get excited, joy in my heart, because I know that in this moment, in this season, when, when, when I face a hardship, a difficulty, when I'm being insulted, when my weaknesses come into play, I know that in that moment, the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of Jesus Christ is gonna be so epically strong, it'll be perfected, and God will have his way. And the one, the one that just hit me, and the one I wanna close with is difficulties. Now, that word difficulties is so specific in the Greek. It literally means a narrow, closed-in place. It, it paints the picture uh, that you're, you're, you're walking and you get in, in between two rocks or two walls and, it, and it's so tight 
You, you can barely move forward, that it's just so difficult. There's nowhere to go. You don't have a lot of options. Uh, you, you're, you're getting kind of trapped. It's just, a, it's a very difficult place. This is so much of the time, the way that God moves in our life. And I believe, and this is the part where I'm going to just begin to share some, my heart. I believe these narrow places is where God moves the most. And I want to take you back to the Garden of Gethsemane where we ended last week's message with. This was a narrow place for Jesus. He was in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was just him and a few of the disciples. A small army, men with clubs and swords showed up. Judas betrayed him. And they're about to arrest him. And in this moment, there's nowhere to go. And there's nothing to do. Peter takes out his sword, classic Peter. Just so you know, this would be me. I would be the fool that thinks we're gonna help God out. Takes his sword out and cuts a guy's ear off. Jesus stops him, condemns him. And then he said something that I've never really read before. It just hit me. He said, don't you think that I could call out to my father and he would send 12 legions of angels to help me right here, right now? Jesus said, don't you think I have options, Peter? And then he says to Peter, he said, those who draw the sword, those who take the sword, they die by the sword. Now, the, old, the, the saying that got famous was those who live by the sword die by the sword. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, in this moment of difficulty, in this moment where you lack, lack, lack direction, where it's hard, where you don't, you don't know where to go, he said, those who draw the sword, they die by the sword. Those who take it into their own hands and lean on their version of what they believe their strengths are, they'll perish because of it. And Jesus said, Peter, I've got options, but I'm choosing to remain humble before God. I'm choosing to go through this narrow space, this difficulty. I'm choosing to suffer because I know, and this is what he says, he said, because how else would it be that the scriptures, that the promises of God would be fulfilled in this way. And this is significant for me. And I preach this whole message just to kind of get to this one moment. You've got to understand a lot of the difficulty that you go through in life, that that's not the devil, that's God. And that even if it's not God actually causing it, that he's allowing it and he'll use that evil and that difficulty for your own good. If you don't exercise the options that you have like Peter did. If you don't defend yourself, he'll defend you and his power will be perfected in your weakness. If you don't try to take control of the situation, he'll take control of it and he'll push forward. I could go on and on and on. I got all kinds of examples. But this is what the Lord just really wanted to put in my heart. God said, I want to move in your life. I want to move. I want to move greatly in your life. But you have to learn how to let me move and stop moving. And you've got to learn when you get into those narrow spaces and in those difficulties that you don't run for the hills, that you don't take out your sword and start chopping, that you don't exercise the options you have, that you're not trying to take control and the power, that you're not trying to manipulate the situation and do it yourself. You just have to calm down and let the thorn dig into your side 
because it's in this moment and it's in this weakness that my power will be significantly perfected and you will operate more powerfully than you can ever imagine. I believe that we're heading into a season if we're not already there. I believe we are heading into a season where God's people are gonna have to learn how to be weak so Jesus can be strong in us. If you never learn how to be weak and you never learn how to, how to just be out of control and you never learn how to just let them put the chains on your hands and you never learn how to just let them walk you to the cross, you'll be extremely limited in the ways at which God can be, use you. See, Paul changed the world. Paul changed the world because he let himself be weak in every way imaginable. And the power of Christ was perfected in his life. God wants to use you. God wants to use you. God will use you. But in order to keep you weak, and to keep you humble, and to keep you powerful, there will never stop being weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, difficulties. It's in these things that we grow into Christ. It's in these things that God changes the world through us. So I want to be like Paul. I want to be used in great and mighty ways. I want the power of Christ in my life. Therefore, I'm not afraid of the pain. That is what will be a strong church. That is what will change the world. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much, Lord. I pray, Father, this is such a hard message, such a difficult message, God. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will awaken some people this morning. Father, even if it's just a few, God. Paul was one man, and look what you did through him. I pray, Father, that if there's just a few this morning who say, I, I get that, I feel the conviction of God in that. And I want God to move in me. I don't want to miss out on being a part of a move of God. And so I pray, Father, for the power, knowing that there will be pain along the way, God, I still desire it, I still pray it, and I still say in my heart, God, use me. And I pray, Father, for me personally and for this church, God, that you will never stop moving in great power. Father, and if I must suffer to stay humble, if I must continually go through difficult seasons, if I must continually find myself in, in narrow spaces, God, then so be it. With joy in my heart, I say thank you, Father. Lord, just move in this house, move through these people in your name. Amen. I love you guys.